Hello you awesome beings, welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known. This podcast is a love letter to my younger self of all the things I wish I'd known before I had deep issues with my mental health and my spiritual awakening. I hope you enjoy listening. Why not head to my website and purchase the new Live From Lockdown, seven guided meditations and gong meditations for your listening pleasure. Use the code TIWIK15, T-I-W-I-K-15 to get 15% off now. Hello and welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known with your host, Rachel, the founder of Wealth and Wellbeing. I am here today with Liz Cashin. I'm really excited to share her story with you. She is a TEDx speaker, a consultant, a trainer, and an author, and her story is just mind-blowing. She is gonna share with you about an accident that happened 30 years ago, and how that trauma from that accident was a catalyst for her spiritual awakening, and all the things in between that may come out in this conversation. So I'm really grateful that you've joined us today. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Me too. I've watched your (laughs) TED talk actually. And it was, I mean, God, I was nearly in tears at at points. There was bits that resonated with me so much. It was really on point. And I love a lot of the stuff that you talk about in that. Can you let everyone know a little bit about you know who you are and how all this came about yeah so basically I had an an unsettled childhood I had a step parent who it turned out was drinking quite a lot and became quite emotionally abusive and so I was from that taking a lot of very negative messages about myself so that was kind of my background while I was growing up so I started to think perhaps that there was something wrong with me because I kept getting told that there was, you know, if you get these repeated messages as a child. And so these kind of seeds, these belief seeds were planted quite early on for me. And then when I was 13, just like every school child goes to school, I had a a school sports day and I was so excited because at that point in my life with everything with my stepdad, what I really craved was recognition. You know, I wasn't getting a lot of it at home. And so I'd found a way through sports to get recognition. And, you know, I really thrived on that. And I'd been selected to throw the javelin from my school in the months leading up to the sports day. And that had been going really well. So on the sports day itself, I was throwing the javelin in the javelin event. And I thought it was a really good chance I was going to get a medal. And for me, that was, you know, a real kind of chance to shine. So I was really excited and looking forward to it. So I went to school that day excited and, you know, it became the kind of defining day of my whole life. You know, it was something that happened that was just so life altering. It became almost the day, my life before that day and then my life after that day. And basically what happened was I was throwing in the javelin event, but my school had put two of my classmates on the field to mark the javelin throws. So you had two 13 year old girls out on the field. And we had a history teacher and an English teacher who were actually overseeing the event. So there was no PE teachers there. So you can already, if you think about it, there's alarm bells ringing already. But obviously back then, it was in the 80s and health and safety wasn't even really a thing. I I can't really remember much about about that. So I did what I was told. I took my run up and threw the javelin. And unfortunately, when I did throw it, my friend, for some reason, was distracted 
one of my friends on the field and then the javelin hit her in the head and she died four days later. Wow, that must have been so difficult. I think it's just very difficult to, to even put into words when something is so traumatic, you know, especially it was so in contrast to how I'd been feeling like a minute earlier, which was the, the excitement and the anticipation. And then suddenly there was this horror film playing out in front of me and people kept telling me everything was going to be all right. And I, I knew, I intuitively knew that it was really serious. And obviously, unfortunately, that played out. But back then, I didn't even get any help to process it. So there was no counselling, no no professional support. Nobody Do you think in my... it was that, you know, well, you're okay. You know, you're not the one that was in the accident yeah. kind of thing. There was like, a sense, yeah. Mm, I see that a lot, I think, in, in stories of trauma, that unless you're kind of the perceived victim, and I say that with inverted commas for people that can't see on, on the podcast, often it's kind of like, well, what are you upset about? Yeah, do you know? And and actually, it's crazy because sitting here, you're like, well, obviously, that, that is super traumatic. Like, nobody could sit there and say, oh, well, you know, just go back to school the next day. But actually, I think the stuff that we're learning about trauma now, and it is quite a new subject, really, is, you know, the way that people have been treated in the past. It's like, ah, it's just caused so many more issues right you know you're absolutely spot on and I think that's exactly what happened and I didn't I didn't feel I had any right to any sort of support you know I felt so guilty as a 13 year old as 13 year olds we tend to blame ourselves for things anyway you know as children if something happens we think it's it's us there's something wrong with us and I already had that background story with my step-parent of feeling that there was something wrong with me. And so this for me was like, well, there you go. Here is the absolute proof. And on a very deep unconscious level, I believed I was evil and that I deserved to be punished. You know, that was what I internalized from that. And now what we know about thought processes and how your thoughts create your reality and everything else, I mean, that probably welcomed in a lot of unwanted experiences, I imagine. Oh, I mean, I just created, you know, a whole world of suffering for myself. You know, when it first happened, I thought I was going to go to prison. You know, as a child would, it was so horrific and someone had died and I threw the javelin and I just thought, well, this is my fault. It has to be. I'm going to go to prison. And then it didn't happen. And so I was left with all of these feelings, all of this trauma, all of that shock. Mm disbelief and and not having any outlet for it and so I channeled it into punishing myself mm. so what about I your would... friends at the time like how was it kind of you know be just interested to like in terms of like having to because I'm assuming you had to go back to school I imagine you maybe had some time off and then you had to go back into school and I'm just thinking like how you know I remember being at school and something minor would happen you know like you'd have a little tiff with one of your girlfriends or something and it would get blown out of proportion you'd think oh my god and you'd be like dreading going in on Monday if something could happened on the Friday so I can't even fathom you know something of that gravitas where you're you're dealing with so much trauma and the fallout and the shock and everything else and then having to go back in and not being sure what's 
waiting for you essentially because kids can be you know school's tough man kids can be really cruel right it was absolutely like that and I because it happened in July you know sports events tend to happen at the end of term and so I think there was a couple of weeks and then we were off for the summer holidays so so I didn't go back until the September and actually for me it was a bit surreal because I had been bullied before it happened you know I had a low self-esteem and so I had been bullied and that that stopped so that was the surreal thing for me it was that I don't think anybody actually dared to say anything because it was just so horrific that yeah. it almost became like this don't mention it don't talk to her kind of thing and so it was almost, almost like, like the rejection elephant in the room type thing like elephant mm. in the room. yeah and yeah. I walked in the classroom and there was an empty desk and chair where she would have sat oh wow and just feeling so responsible for that and I was told that all the teachers were keeping an eye on me but, but nobody was talking to me about it. So I felt like I was in this goldfish bowl and it was just magnifying my feelings of shame and guilt and blame. It was, yeah, it was horrific. But I, I have to say that her parents and family from the beginning were incredible. Like they, they have never blamed me at all, you know, right from the beginning. They just wanted to protect me. They wanted to make sure I was okay. I mean, incredible thinking about what they were going through at that point. And so I think if that hadn't have happened, you know, I wonder now whether actually I would have made it through. But I think even though I found it incredibly difficult to be around them because I was feeling so guilty, I know now that actually how supportive that was really for me on, on some level, not to, you know, really tip over. And I think that you know, that could have been a possibility. I think the way people deal with loss is just, incredible you know you hear these incredible stories don't you of, of people that you know in, in situations exactly as this it's like you've you know lost your child like I can't think of how awful that must be and yet they're probably looking at you and thinking well you know you're very similar to their daughter right same age same same class all that kind of stuff so of course they're gonna think wow you know how awful this must be for for you as well you know without taking away their loss and the grief that they must have been feeling and the shock and all of that but actually being able to be like well this must also be horrendous for you and let's actually come together and support each other through this rather than dividing which you will yeah. also see you know I've seen some incredible stories when I was doing some research for an article that I was writing there was this woman who a guy had shot her in the head in a carjacking in America and she nearly died from it. And he was, I think it was like 17 or so. Like he was really young, like super, super young. And he was in a gang and, you know, he wanted to get the car. And he thought that he'd just show her the gun and she'd be scared. But she was actually, I think she did something around shooting or something. So she wasn't really scared with a gun in her face. She was just kind of like, you're not having my car, go away. <laughs> you know? And then he panicked and basically, you know, he shot her. But he didn't, it, it, you know, and he wrote to her and said, you know, I'd really like to have a conversation with you. Some years later, he went to jail, obviously, you know, he was in prison for years. And she said, okay, and she, so she took the phone call and he said, I never thought that she would speak to me. And eventually he came out of prison, I think he was like 40 years old or 45 or something like that. So he'd spent basically his whole life in prison. And she arranged for him to get a job 
and he came and lived with her because they'd created this relationship in throughout these like 30 years of prison of being able to communicate either side of the story and she realized that he was just this you know guy that had you know he didn't have a really great upbringing he'd been in this gang because he thought that they were his family and you know and all this stuff and she just started thinking like wow what would I have done if I was 17 I was in that situation and she said you know when he came out of prison she thought well he looks like a 40 odd year old man and will be behaving like a 40 year old man but really he's like 17 he hasn't lived he doesn't he's never had a mobile phone he's never had a deal with like you know getting electricity or I don't know all this kind of stuff that we take for granted that most adults would know so she was like oh do you know what actually come and live with me I can teach you this stuff I can get you a job and and it was just like wow you know what a like story of forgiveness and kind of how people can respond in trauma as an option you know and I'm not saying that option's there for everyone because it's trauma is a very complex and forgiveness is a very complex yeah subject you know but I was just like wow that is crazy and it sounds very similar situation where they've just had so much compassion for you and wanted to support you and go okay how can we make this horrendous situation better through love through compassion through empathy you know it's so true and gosh that is such a powerful story as well about that that lady and something I wish I'd known about this situation back then because I I had post-traumatic stress disorder didn't know was, it, it was wasn't that even picked thing. up was wasn't it even a thing in the 80s no. it's quite a recent terminology and of course it was a, applied to soldiers for a long time and it's only like three years ago that I actually got a diagnosis so I've been living with it undiagnosed all that time wow but I wish I'd been able to process what had happened back then because then I think I because I I just couldn't understand at the time why her family were being so loving and compassionate because as far as I was concerned I had killed their daughter I just couldn't see it any other way I thought how can they there's something not right here how, how can they be this loving when it's my fault you know that's as the 13 year old because because I already had these internalized beliefs that there was something wrong with me. So it's a very childlike perspective that I had, but I kept that perspective all those years internally because I didn't get any help to process it, to, to kind of allow that traumatized part to speak and to heal and to grow up. So she was stuck in that time. Of course. And I think if I'd, if I'd been able to process it back then, then I think maybe I could have got angry with the school which actually I had a right to be. It was only three years ago. I was like, God, actually, you know, I had a right to be safe at school that day. Hadn't even crossed, crossed my mind before then. I'd been so stuck in the blame and the guilt. And then suddenly I thought, God, actually, you know, my friend absolutely had a right to be safe at school. And, and I did. I, suddenly I was in the mix, which I'd never put myself in that before. So I think, you know, and that was over 30 years that I was carrying all of that. Which was very difficult. What was it like when you got your diagnosis and how did that come about? Because you'd think that, you know, kind of 30 years after a trauma, and I, th I guess for people that are listening to this, because I think a lot of the time, in my experience as well, kind of had a pretty major trauma happen in my life. And it took me about five years before I really went to get help because I just, similar thing, you blame yourself, you don't, you know, you don't think you deserve it, this, that and the other. And what I see a lot, and especially with clients and things, and they'll say things like, 
but it was 20 years ago or it was 10 years ago it was five years ago I should have just got over it by now what that's not even a thing for me anymore I mean what was that like kind of 30 years on going okay wow I've got PTSD and I've actually been living with this do you know it was such a relief I feel emotional even saying it (laughs) because I'd just been living in chaos in my mind I, I was so good at disguising it I mean people that have known me you know, back in the chaos days, why well, you always seem so confident? I mean, I was like the master of disguise, but at the detriment to my mental health and my self-esteem and my well-being, I was just constantly trying to pretend that I was okay and not let people too close to me and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And I, I think it took so long as well because when I was, about a year after it had happened, my mum sent me to see the GP And he said, why are you here? And I said, my mum thinks I'm depressed. Now you can imagine from what had happened. (laughs) Yeah. I would have been depressed as well as traumatised. Completely. He just said, depression, my dear, is a serious clinical condition. I don't think you're depressed. And just sent me out. Wow. Oh, my God. And and that Ah. damaged me so much because then I thought, oh, well, the doctor's saying, nothing you know there's nothing wrong with you you've got to just get on with it you know so I just got had to get on with it and I thought I can't tell people how I'm feeling because you know apparently I'm not depressed and you know all of this no one's going to believe me I'm not being heard not being heard and when you've already got that internalized shame and guilt and the feeling of I'm innately bad and there's something wrong with me and then someone essentially goes, yeah, and you have that, because it's scary when you have to go to the doctor and you go, mm, I was terrified. I, I remember, yeah, when I had to go with my depression and I was just absolutely, and I was, you know, I was obviously very unwell to be there when I went. And, you know, it was quite evident, but I remember just being terrified. And I think there's this thing that I hear a lot and was definitely my experience and sounds like yours as well, where you're just so terrified of being caught out Like you get so good at putting all these different masks on that some days you wake up and you're not really sure what one you've got on and you've created this like web of, for want of a better description, lies about who you are and how you behave. And you've got all these very rehearsed and very well practiced, you know, masks to put on. Okay, this is my work mask. This is my family mask. This is my, I'm going out and I'm really fun and like, check me out mask and yeah you know I'm this fun you know whatever and underneath it's like oh and then you've just got to like there's this whole paradigm of just like if people really knew like who I was and what was like if people could see this like disgusting yeah black vile stuff that's going on underneath nobody would want to be near me and it's that whole thing and like how damaging that is to carry that around and to carry it for 30 years. I mean, I'm terrified of being found out. Absolutely terrified. It's you exhausting, know, isn't it? It's exhausting. I would, you know, and you're absolutely right. You know, I, I'd have that, that fun side. People say someone approached me last year because I I'd, I'd published my book and I had lots of people from school get in touch. And I was terrified about being in touch with people from school because I was still holding on to something I think and, and it was all so positive and someone said you know I arrived at the school when I was 15 and you were always so lovely to me and you were always laughing and joking I can't remember that I cannot remember that at all me me laughing and joking during that time 
I just remember feeling traumatized. So it was all a disguise. It was all a like a smokescreen. Mm. And I often wonder, like, how many people are just living like that day in, day out? You know, millions of people. And I often wonder about, you know, when you look at people bringing children into the world and various things and whatever, and it's like, if you haven't done the work and you're traumatised and then you're bringing up, it's like we're just passing on, like, trauma upon trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And it's like... No wonder there's all these, you know, sort of like people growing up with all this stuff because we're all not really being ourselves because we're so, <laughs> so afraid of being who we are and dealing with what's underneath because we're not taught how to. And especially in Britain, you know, we're very much taught stiff up a lip and just get on with it and keep calm and carry on. And, all that and this is and perfectionist society. Everything's got to be perfect. We've got to be perfect. You yeah. Know, of anyone saying anything less than perfect it's terrifying so what was the next steps for you so you, you kind of obviously you've gone to the doctor they've gone you're not depressed dear <laughs> god that must have been just so awful for you and then you've kind of gone back to school you've like so what happened between you know that and then 30 years later finally getting your diagnosis what well, I mean I decided at school that I was going to channel my energies into getting my exams which looking back, considering how traumatized I was, was amazing in itself. And so I did that. I, you know, I got 12 O-levels, which was amazing back then. But I really felt like I was doing it in my friend's memory. You know, I felt like I had to do it for her. And then as soon as I was able to, in my sixth form, I actually went to sit in the vice bureau, moved out of the family home because my step-parent was so emotionally abusive, I couldn't bear it anymore. And I knew that I had to get my... A levels and go to university it was like my route out and so again this inner strength from you know I didn't feel it at the time didn't feel strong at all but looking back now and I think god you know the strength that it took to leave a family home and go and live by myself well actually I shared shared a flat with someone with mental health issues because it was a sheltered housing flat but got my A levels in that that environment and, and got off to university and then I think I started to unravel it was like away from everything a friend of mine from home, she came to visit one and she said she'd been out clubbing. She'd taken ecstasy. It was amazing. And I was, you could, because I'd been in such an emotionally abusive environment, I was a good girl. You know, I did what I was told to try and stay under the radar and not get this emotional abuse. And so that was kind of my rigidity. And then she said she'd been taking drugs. I was like, oh, I couldn't take drugs. And then we were trying. And then, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> so we were driving to a club one night. I said, I'll come to the club, but I'm not taking any drugs. And she said, okay, yeah. And then we were driving along. And then a police car just started following her car. I think it was just behind her car, as opposed to about to pull us over. And I didn't know she had an ecstasy tablet in the car, which she put, she reached down, put it in half and said to me, eat it now. <laughs> the police are going. And I was, I went, I was so shocked. I went, I ate it. And then I thought, oh. And I put this in my book, but I said, I prayed to a God that I didn't even know I wanted to believe in. Because I, I was so afraid of there being a punishing God. You know, I was christened a Catholic, although not a practicing Catholic at that point. 
But all of that was in my system. I thought there was going to be this punishing God that when I died, I, I was going straight to hell. And, you know, all of the, that. Had the whole Leah Betts thing happened by this point as well? No, not yet. No. So I was thinking, like, you know, that whole thing was like a really yeah. big deal, wasn't it? And like looking at, oh, God, if you take one, you're just going to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like... that, that was later. Like, yeah. I, I was, I was ahead, ahead of that one. But... Yeah. And I, I actually, you know, I went like this, the sign of the cross, and I was in the car thinking, oh my God, what have I done? But to be honest, I didn't really have long to wait. There's just the, this rush of ecstasy came up. And I was like, Phew. it was, for me, it was the first time I'd had any release from the pain. And then went into this club, I felt so connected to everyone, dancing and, you know, everyone was saying, I love you. And I was saying it back and, you know, it just felt euphoric. And so that was the start of, you were saying, you know, the fun live, wildly. Well, do you know what? I've literally had this conversation in private. It's now going public about how many people who are in the rave scene, because that was very much my story as well. You know, that I just basically, from the age of about 11, I was just obsessed with jungle music and I just wanted to be a raver. That's why I was like, I can't wait to go to a rave when I'm bigger. <laughs> it's like... And so I just went to so many ways, but similar, I, I wasn't really doing drugs at the start of it. But how many people that I met that I now look back and I go, oh my God, all the people in there were essentially, you know, a lot of my friends and people that I met through rave culture are essentially traumatized people. And I'm not suggesting if you've got PTSD or whatever, I'm not suggesting go to raves and get better. But actually there's a lot of parallels between, if you look at certain trauma exercises that you might do and the way that trauma needs to be processed and completed within the body a lot of it is like if you've got anxiety if you've got stress if you've got you've got a lot of adrenaline in your body and cortisol and how do you burn that off by moving running or going boxing or whatever and you're dancing for like eight hours you're burning off a lot of adrenaline and they use mdma in therapy now for ptsd and psilocybin and all these different you know recreational drugs they're actually using and finding that people can open up and talk about things that they couldn't talk about before and and I just think it's so interesting how human beings we're just so incredible at finding a solution even if it's you know I'm again I'm not suggesting that that's a great solution for people to just go and get some street drugs and take them you know whatever but how we subconsciously find these roots to essentially solving our problem and it seems like that for you you know it's like oh I don't feel pain anymore I can connect to people you know and these are things like when you're traumatized you can't connect to people and it's devastating and you can't feel no and suddenly you're like oh I can feel <laughs> I can yeah. connect to people this is amazing yeah there's joy there's you know there was euphoria it was like Oh, that's been amazing for you that day. Yeah. You know, boys started finding me attractive. Suddenly I was like, you know, those thoughts, and if it had seemed different to some people, that's, you know, suddenly I was, but I had, but it was only really when I took the drugs, you know, it was like this. And when they were off, I was, of course, back to me, but actually even more damaged in a way through the repetitive drug taking. But I took drugs for about 10 years. You know, I didn't want to stop. Do you think as well, though, that, you know, it's quite easy to hide depression through being hungover or on a come down because everyone feels it's like a valid shit. reason, isn't it? 
So yeah. then you don't really have to look at it because you're like, well, everyone feels like crap. And then it's the weekend again. Yeah. So then you, you know, it's a valid reason to like take your medicine. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's, you know, and then everyone feels rubbish on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then you start feeling better on Wednesday and then it's Thursday. So you might as well go out again. <laughs> you end up in this cycle. Oh gosh, yeah, you just described my life. Yeah, yeah, that's how it was. <laughs> My weekends were getting longer and longer, you know, and I was taking more and more and more. So I'd go out on a Friday and I actually wouldn't sleep until Sunday night. Mm. I think this is really, really common for a lot of traumatised people, you know. Yeah, I didn't want to because the more I the more I took, the more I wanted to stay like that. Because it feels nice. Because <laughs> it feels nice. And the yeah, break um, from what's actually happening in the trauma, right? Yeah. So I can understand, you know. A lot of other young people when they, you know, they're, they're taking drugs and we can't just judge them for taking drugs. That's not what's going on. It's what is going on inside of them that is creating. And I hid this, don't forget. You know, my family didn't know. My work didn't know. So again, it was the shame. It was the shame I was feeling. And I was, you know, creating it on a, on a real level so that I had more things that I could actually feel shame about terrified again that someone was going to find out you know some I may have told some people a little bit but it was you know it was far worse I mean by the end I was it was really bad the amount that I was taking and the self-abuse really that's what I mean I was punishing myself it was another I'd found to punish myself I was in abusive relationships because you know that was like my step parents so I was just attracting that and actually I felt I deserved that so I was just repeating that cycle looking at ways to punish do you know what I mean yeah. I, if your belief is I deserve to be punished yeah you know you're going to be looking to prove yourself right in all the areas of your life with that belief system you know totally and I, I just kept proving myself right you know the whole way and with this semblance of normality <laughs> You know, this is the thing. And I think it's it, it was a struggle for some people in my family to understand actually how traumatised I've been because I would always put on this, yeah, yeah, you know, fine. Oh, yeah. I remember talking to my like my parents and my family about my depression. Bear in mind, I lived in their hat. They were looking after me. Yeah. And, that, and they were like, we didn't think it was that bad. And I was like, yeah. I was thinking about killing myself like 20 times a day. And they were like, really? I was like, Mum, you were helping me to brush my teeth. I didn't get out of bed for days. She's like, I know, I just thought you needed to rest. She was like, because every time I came in, you were so polite and lovely and cheerful. <laughs> I was like, God, I don't remember that at all. That was not my experience. <laughs> you know? Isn't it amazing why we why we do that, though? Why, you know, Because we want to be loved. Like, you know, yeah, we want to be loved and accepted yeah. and we're scared that if people know, or that was my experience anyway, and I think the yeah. experience of a lot of my clients and people that I talk to, it's like, we just want to be loved. We want to be accepted. And we're scared that if we go, I hate myself. I deserve to be punished. I'm this disgusting, awful human being. I'm full of shame. If you knew who I really was, here, here it all is on a plate. Nine times out of ten, most people would be like, none of that stuff's awful. You poor little thing, come in and have a hug. <laughs> but you're so terrified. They're going to be like, yeah, you're right. You are disgusting. And I don't want to be near you. Yeah. You know, that you just pretend everything's fine. Yeah. It's a real crazy paradigm that you get trapped in. But, you know, I started to, I was kind of forced. So that level of pain that I was in, it was kind of forcing me to ask the bigger questions of life. Looking back, that's what I started. Why me? Why her? What is the purpose of all this? 
what's life all about? You know, do some people just get the short straw and some people the long straw? Is it just a random lottery? You know, why, why was I born? Was it just to create so much misery for other people? You know, all of these questions yeah. are the ones that I was asking of myself, like, what is it all about? That is a heavy journaling session right there. <laughs> many, many heavy journaling sessions. When I went to write my book, I actually got every, all my journals out and was reading. I thought, oh my God, you know, year on year, the thoughts, those negative, really negative thoughts, it was like exactly the same, exactly the same. I thought, oh, you know, I have more passion actually for, for myself. But in the end, I think, you know, I was really, I was heading on a one-way street and I think if I'd carried the way I was going you know I think I would have ended up killing myself at some point it, it was you know it was taking a lot of, of drugs because I think you build your tolerance up over time but it was almost as if life really wanted to give me a wake-up call and I had a car crash God. I was driving in like oh, this story is like intense isn't it like, oh I need a breather <laughs> I'm so glad that I'm talking to you because I'm like, how are you still alive after all this? Do you know, when I first went to get help, I was giving them background story and they were like, oh, hang on, well, that's pretty serious. No, 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 I was saying, no, no, I'll wait till I get to the bit. You know, I'm just giving you some background. And they were like, but this is traumatic. And I was like, no, no, no. So it's been, you know, it's layers yeah. definitely of unpacking. But I was just driving in London one night, a black cab came out of a one-way street the wrong way. So it was, it was the cab's fault. And I uh, smashed into it. And it really was a massive wake up call. You know, I moved out of London for a few months to recover. And I, I just started to think, what, you know, what am I doing with my life? And I ended up moving out of London, went to Leeds for a bit. I got a payout from the car crash. And then suddenly, so this is the, it starts to get easier. <laughs> suddenly, I had the means to go traveling around the world, which is something that I'd wanted to do for as long as I could remember, but it had never been a possibility. And suddenly there was the funding. And so off I went and I could never see, I'd always wanted to go traveling, could never see beyond it. But it was only when I went traveling that I realized why that was because everything just changed so utterly and completely that I wouldn't have believed it before. And I just, my, my intention, a lot of people go traveling to party and take drugs. I actually went traveling to stop doing that. You know, I just went yeah. to just get away and break that pattern yeah 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 ended up in India on a beach in South India and it was it was amazing there was dolphins in the bay I mean it was absolute paradise it was like I just thought oh, for, for, I feel my whole system going oh thank goodness you know we found a place we can start to settle and then a Dutch girl Adinda asked me if I'd like some Reiki and I was like what you know at this point I was so closed off to anything anything really <laughs> and she said well it sounds a bit weird but if you just lie down you just can lie down fully clothed and then you know we can have a chat about it later so uh, I was like oh you know I was traveling I'll try new things lay down and she didn't even put her hands on me you know it was hands above Reiki I felt so blissful I honestly I think now I've learned about chakras and things that I think it was actually a kundalini awakening awakening if I think it just blew my chakras open because I was so closed but it was incredible. And there was, you know, without any drugs, I felt the highest high I'd ever felt. Mm, and yeah. how calming, because I'm a Reiki practitioner as well. Oh, great. And that was part of my healing journey. And it's just, I think, 
yeah it's really powerful just for like calming the nervous system isn't it and it's like oh, oh yeah this is what relaxes this is what, <laughs> exactly so nice. this connection to something greater than me which wasn't religious but it was it was a it was in my heart it was it was real it was for me it was a more real thing rather than this intellectual thing about religion that never really seemed to fit for me but it was this connection to I felt connected to, to everything and mm. that was that was the the kind of start of the the journey back from there but but it was only because I was in so much pain that's why I say that that trauma was really the catalyst for this because I was in so much pain that I had to find a way out and it was through that that I had I started asking those bigger questions and then started getting the answers to those questions. I kind of set that process. It was like a really clear intention setting, asking those questions, but then things started to happen for me to be able to get some personal answers. Yeah. And so, I mean, your story is just amazing. It's like, you know, one of those things, most people would be like, wow, you know, having, you know, kind of abusive upbringing or like, you know killing your friend at 13 I mean it's a super traumatic big car accident you know all these things drug taking like all these different layers of stuff I mean if there was one I don't even know if you can pick one thing so I imagine there's lots but if there was like one thing that you wish you'd known about the trauma and PTSD and kind of how to get out of that for like anyone listening who you know maybe hasn't experienced the same thing but might be having that that internal shame that internal feeling of like if people really knew and you're still living in that hidden space like what advice would you you give to those people from what you've learned on your incredible journey I think one of the biggest moments when I actually had a trauma treatment a few years ago I suddenly had a, a realization that I hadn't done anything wrong. And that actually I was having a normal, so I still feel emotional about it. I was having a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And that to use the word normal for myself was transformative because I just felt so evil, so abnormal. And I think if I'd known at the time that everything I was experiencing was a normal reaction to this horrific event, and that actually there was nothing wrong with me. Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? I think when you realise that all the things that you're doing, even though they might seem a little bit extreme and a little bit out there, it's essentially your system just trying to keep you alive and essentially your system trying to keep you safe. And, you know, when you're experiencing things like hypervigilance and panic attacks and, you know, avoidance was a huge one for me. I didn't even realise that was a thing. Yeah. And, you know, like you were saying, chucking yourself into schoolwork, that's basically you know, numb everything else out. I'll just focus on this one thing that's got nothing to do with whatever and 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 just avoid everything else and chuck myself into this one thing. You know, that's really common. That's just your body's way of trying to to process. And, you know, things like you said, oh, well, we just didn't really talk about it. And, yeah. you know, I learned that there's a part in the brain, this fascinated me, I think I learned this from Bessel van der Kolk's book. Oh, yes. That was transformative. Either his book or it might have been in Garba Mate's book. I always get those two mixed up. It was saying about how 
in the brain, there's a part of the brain that they cut the neuropathway from the trauma to the tongue. So even if you wanted to talk about it, you can't because it would be so traumatizing for you to relive it, to, to verbalize it, that literally there's a part of the brain that just goes, uh -uh, and it stops you from being able to talk about it. And I think, I mean, this is just my theory. This isn't based in anything other than I've read a lot of stuff and I assume this to be true. So don't don't write this down anyone listening but I wonder whether that's why a lot of people with big traumas don't actually seek help until five or six years afterwards or 10 years afterwards or 20 years afterwards because it takes that amount of time for you to be able to start the process of being able to even verbalize what happened and also I think to have the capacity to hold this is what I realized even though I did the trauma treatment just a few years ago I realized I needed to have the capacity as an adult to be able to hold that traumatized part while she went through the healing. And I'm not sure I was ready before that. When I had to live the whole thing and oh my, you know, I can understand yeah. why she was so dissociated at the time. And, you know, because it was horrific, you know. Yeah, reliving the trauma and like completing the trauma is like, but what's on the other side is like, woohoo, yeah. <laughs> <It's> so good, <laughs> <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> and I think something else that I learned was that I, you know, I, and I believe we all are, we have these different parts of my mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. And that's our kind of, that's the whole of us. And that actually my healing, because for a long time after that Reiki, I went down a holistic route because obviously I'd had a very difficult time with doctors before yeah. that. I had another episode, which I won't go into, but it was just as damaging as the first one. And so I rejected all of that. And so really explored lots of holistic things, became a workshop junkie. You know, it was another addiction in a way, but a more healthier one than the other ones I'd had. But just, I was fascinated by this whole, hey, what is this thing with Reiki? Why do I feel this way? And what, and then I discovered about my mind and, you know, how the mind works and emotional bodies. And actually I really need, I've been rejecting my body because, you know, I was so out of my body with the trauma. I, I, that was a process of coming back in and learning to love my body again because I felt my body betrayed me by what had happened. And then getting the actual trauma treatment, which is more what the kind of... What did you have just out of interest? I had trauma CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, initially. And I've done some somatic work, some body work, and also I've had some EMDR, the eye movement. Life-changing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was holding it for so long. My poor nervous system has really, you know, taken a battering in this lifetime. So I, it's an ongoing journey for me. I, I practice mindfulness. It's something that I've been doing now ever since that trip, the Reiki trip, which was in 2003. So the last 17 years, I've uh, been practicing mindfulness. And that's really supported me, helped me to become more resilient and built my capacity. So I think it's, for me, the things that I do now every day that help to sustain my level of well-being that without them you know I'd be in a different a different place but that's been a process because then I, I started to accept what had happened I started to accept myself then I started to love myself and then I wanted to nurture myself I wanted to put these practices in place so you know it's all it's all been a journey I think that's a really poignant point to just sit on for a moment because I totally agree with that you know if you don't love yourself you're not going to be looking at ways to make yourself feel good or 
to not allow people to treat you in a certain way or to put boundaries down or to eat well or exercise or practice mindfulness because you don't believe on a on a deeper level you don't believe that you deserve that and you deserve you know if, if you're going around carrying around you know shame and guilt and these kind of very insidious quite damaging emotions that essentially say I don't deserve this or I deserve to be punished or you know or even worse I deserve this as in everything bad that happens it's my fault and I deserve it you're not gonna seek out help or anything like that and I think it is a layered process like healing through trauma is such a layered process of you know like you say acceptance and and building self-love but self-love is a daily practice you know it's an ongoing thing yeah and it gets deeper and deeper older than sometimes things sneak back in and you think where have you come from yeah. <laughs> I, thought we, I thought we dealt with you yeah. <laughs> you're not welcome here negative voice <laughs> <laughs> hello old friends what are you doing turning up here in paradise no <laughs> get back where you belong <laughs> quite funny although now I do I do welcome them as old friends now yeah of course in the beginning I would like I don't want you I don't want you I don't want yeah. that bad stuff I don't want that. and now I welcome it with love you know and yeah. say in myself what I think it's really important for people to to learn that as well I often go through this process with my clients of like the parts of you that are afraid you know essentially that's what it is like that part of you that's terrified you're going to get caught out that part of you that you don't want to show to anyone because you you just think it's so awful if you think of that part like you know your part for example is this traumatized 13 year old you know who's had this awful awful accident happen that's really you know not nobody's fault I'm sure there was things within the school and health and safety and whatever that could have been done to prevent it but it happened and it's done and if you were an adult, which you now are as your adult self, and you were listening to the story of this child that wasn't you, someone else's child, let's say, would you say to them, you're disgusting, you disgust me, it's your fault, you deserve it, you know, or would you say, oh my God, sweetie, come here, let me wrap you in a blanket let me hold you let me cry it's okay you know it's going to be fine and how can I support you through this that's generally what you would do you know and and we're not doing that to ourselves we're treating ourselves in the way of like an angry berating parent of our inner child you know and actually these little traumatized parts of ourselves are the parts that need the love the most and I think actually when those negative things come in when you can go oh dear hello old friend <laughs> how can I love you more <laughs> what do you need now I thought I'd loved you enough already <laughs> you know we can start to integrate and then that's where the power comes from you know and that's when joy can come back and you can feel relaxed and and whatever but yeah it's a very interesting journey isn't it this whole thing it so is and when I first started practicing mindfulness it actually was very painful for me because when I stopped of course looked inside my traumatized self and I had this raging voice I mean absolutely raging it was hard to sit with that level of rage and so I'd go in and out of the practice not surprisingly when I look back because I think it was just too much but then I had no actual support for that but 
I kept going. That's the thing. I think that's what I'd say to people is keep going. I so feel mm. emotional saying it. You know, mm. a better day is possible. You know, that's what I wish I'd known back in those days as well, is that actually better days are possible. Don't give up. You know, I know those days when I've almost given up because I just, the pain was just too much. And then it just, you know, even if these words are just a glimmer of hope or of light, you know, that actually a better day is possible. It's coming. Just keep yeah. going, keep going, keep trusting. Yeah. Wow. I think that's just a beautiful place to bring it to an end. And if there's anything else you want to share. Oh my gosh, there's so much. I, I know I could talk to you all day. I always say this to my guests. I'm like, oh my God, I need to make like a Joe. Is it Joe Rogan who does those like five hour podcasts? Or whatever. I'm, like, I'm always looking at the clock going, no, there's so much more I want to talk about. I think maybe if I could leave one question, people, that they could ask themselves every day that will lead them in the right direction, which is, how can I be kinder to myself today? How can I be kinder to myself today? And just asking that question, like I was asking those bigger questions of life, just asking how can I be kinder to myself, then you'll start to get some answers. Things will come to you and you know you can start to build that kindness resilience in yourself. Yeah, I think the three, I mean, the key things that you've said there around self-love, 100%, trust, like how much I did not trust myself you know, that took it. Oh, that's an ongoing process for me, to be honest, you know, but I think that is to tr- just trust yourself. You're going to get through it. You've already got through it. You know, that, that, that was one of the things when I was doing survived. therapy, she's like, you've already survived it. Like what you're experiencing is you're essentially reliving because you haven't completed the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And so once you can complete that and feel all those feelings and process them, then you can kind of move out of it but it's when you're in that bit you're like I don't want to I don't want to it's too scary you know it's like terrifying but when you come out the other side you're like oh now I trust myself so much more yeah and I think that mindfulness you know what you said there about mindfulness of sitting through it and I try and teach this is one of the reasons I wrote my course meditation made simple because when I started meditating as a traumatized person Mate. Like a, it's like a big light shining on it all, isn't it? It's horrible. Oh. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah, you know, terrifying. and then people are saying, just let it go. Yeah. Relax. relax. I'm like, I'm really in my trauma. I can't relax. I did a meditation. She said, breathe into your heart. And I thought, well, I know I'm alive. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I've got a heart. I couldn't feel it. No way could I feel it. Yeah. Where is well, I just, what is that? Just go with it. Just Not go with my tent. body. this is why because then I was in the course to talk about meditating safety if you feel re-traumatized don't sit in the meditation come out of it you can go back into it tomorrow that's okay if you're sitting with trauma and it feels a bit too much you know you can breathe through it and sit with it that's powerful but you can also stop at any point that's okay as well you know and no one tells you that about meditation everyone just talks about the spiritual air and I'm floating on air and I'm enlightened <laughs> and I've seen all these bloody beautiful colors and I've aligned my chakras and I'm like sitting there going <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know and I'm a massive advocate of meditation I am I think it's an incredible incredible tool it's changed my yeah. life but no one talks about that bit of it and that's why I wrote my course. There's a whole <laughs> section. There's like a whole week on what to do with emotions. 
when they happen because they will and I think even if you're not traumatized you know like you said sitting with rage that's a lesson <laughs> I did end Dave Passana in complete silence sitting with my rage Ooh. I had to actually go outside at one point and break my own silence to just tell my rage where it could go. You know, I was just like, I've had enough. I can't deal with it. Get get out of my head. Yeah. If anyone's listening and you're traumatised, do not under any circumstances go and do a Vipassana meditation. No, I agree. Please, please, for the love of whoever you believe in, in spirit, whatever, don't do that until you've done some trauma work. Because that was... Yeah. See, I did everything the wrong I did everything the tough way. I did the same. I did it all wrong, wrong way round because I didn't know anything. I was just blindly going into practices and going, that might help. And then being like, that didn't help. Yeah. Let me back about eight months of my healing journey. Like, oh, I should have done EMDR and then done the Vipassana. I did three weeks in science, not the past but just I could do any practice and actually that was transformative for me and the, it was in Sri Lanka and the meditation teacher at the beginning he said to me why are you so hard on yourself and I said I'm not hard on myself I've been on you know I used to be but I used to be hard on myself I've been doing all this healing and blah 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 and he said you really need to be kinder to yourself and I felt it was like oh gosh you know I can still feel it now it was like almost like oh and I yeah. realized that even though I'd been on this healing journey, I was still punishing myself because I was going to this, like you say, just jumping into this, jumping, no safety. Didn't even understand psychological safety because I hadn't had any help. I was just jumping into all these things that were, some of them are re-traumatizing. But I sat with myself for three weeks in silence and just went through the layers. And actually I could journal in this meditation center. So it wasn't like the Vipassana, it was much softer, much kinder. Yeah. And I dropped through all the layers and then I got to the bottom and I realized how much I hated myself. I really hated myself. But in that moment of feeling that level of hatred, it was almost like my heart cracked open at that point. Because I thought, oh my gosh, I was just, a, you know, as a child, I started having compassion for mm. myself. But kindness was a key part. Yeah, I love that. So just repeat your thing again, your question to let everyone sit with. The question is, how can I be kinder to myself today? So just sit with that, guys. And wow, Liz, this has been so good. I can't wait to let this one out. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I could talk to you all day. Thank you so, so much for coming. How can people, if they want to get in touch, can they work with you? How, how do people, if they want to learn more about your story, if they want to work with you, if they like how can they find you how can they get in touch with you yeah so I'm I'm lucky because my name is spelled L-I-S and then my surname is Cashin and so it's unusual so if you just google me you'll come up with all sorts of things but my website is name listcashin.com my book is called this is me one hell of a path to happiness wow and people can see my TEDx talk mental health awakening suffering is surmountable and I do coaching I do training programs I'm a speaker as you said at the beginning so, you know, people can book me to do any or all of those things. I'd love to hear. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. I mean, it's just been incredible. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will see you again next week. Take care. If you enjoyed listening, why not leave us a review? It really does help other people to find this podcast and enjoy it too. Feel free to share it with friends and family members that you think it might be useful to. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.